In the bulletin, there is a page that contains the outline of the sermon. And you will notice now that our scripture reading is from Hebrews 12, and that the sermon text is from Genesis 4. But I'm going to reverse the order on those so that we hear of our need uh, before we hear of God's fulfillment of it uh, for us. So we will begin with Genesis chapter 4 and verses 1 through 8, if you would turn there in your Bibles. This is the very word of God to you. Let us hear as God speaks to us. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. I invite you now to turn over to the New Testament to Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, and darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, 
and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and all. For our God is a consuming fire. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his holy word. Let us bow for prayer. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, as we come before you, as we open your word and as we give heed to what you say to us through your word, may your spirit be pleased to grant to us not only understanding of its truths, but grant the Spirit's supernatural, miraculous work in our hearts to soften our hard, sinful hearts, to create in us spiritual and eternal life, and to so fill us each day more and more with your Spirit that we may be able to walk in holiness and in godliness, even in a world where we are constantly battered by trials and suffering and temptations. May we be able to do so for the glory of God in the knowledge of your love and mercy and promise of your eternal presence. For this we pray in Christ's name, whom to know is life eternal. Amen. The Word of God, the Bible, which is God's holy revelation of His will, His holy giving to us of His will for our lives, begins in the very first chapter, Genesis 1, by telling us that He created all our world and placed humanity into it for us to enjoy its rich abundance and for us to enjoy intimate communion with our loving Creator. But when we come to Genesis chapter 3, we see that it tells us that our world became, and this is my first point in the sermon, it became a fallen, frustrating, and futile world. God commanded Adam and Eve to rely upon Him, to rely upon His perfect provision for their earthly and spiritual and eternal life. All that they needed was to be found in God and fellowship and walking with Him. But tragically, they chose to disobey God. 
They chose to put themselves in the place of God and to choose for themselves and for all their descendants their own way to follow. Adam's rebellion brought sin into the lives of all people. And our sin produces in our lives the miseries of anxiety, frustration, sorrow, pain, sickness, suffering, conflict, war, and death. These miseries flow from our sins, but they are also punishments from God for our sins. God has imposed these things upon the human race so that we will not love our sin so much that there will be no hope of salvation for us. God intends for there to be painful consequences to sin. So that we will learn to hate our sins and to flee from our sins and to flee to God for the deliverance that he can give to us from our sins. God even cursed the very land that feeds us so that our lives would be consumed with hard and difficult work so that our time and our ability to do evil in this world are limited. Limited by the necessities of labor in life and limited by the fact that all our bodies will return to the dust of the earth. But God also gave a wonderful promise of deliverance from sin and from its miseries and from its punishments. In Genesis 3.15, he says that the offspring of the woman who will come will strike the head of the serpent. And Romans 16.20 tells us of, of how that was fulfilled. It says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This makes it clear that the offspring of the woman is none other than Jesus Christ. And also, all those who are in Christ through faith. We are the offspring of the woman. And the serpent and its offspring are Satan and all those who are under the dominion of Satan. Jesus Christ has already struck the fatal blow against Satan by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And Jesus will strike the final blow against Satan at his return. And even though, though the offspring of Satan puts to death some of those who are in Christ in this world, their Faithful testimony to Christ, even to the point of death, demonstrates that in fact, believers have not been conquered by Satan. Believers have conquered and overcome and defeated Satan because they did not give in to his pressure to turn away from Christ. And instead, they remained faithful to Christ until death and they overcame Satan. And even though they died, they yet now live and reign 
with Christ in heaven. Additionally, just as pain and suffering causes our hearts to long for a new world, not this world of pain and suffering, a new world, a new heavens, and a new earth that is perfect, that is without sin, and in which we shall dwell in the presence of God forever. So too, Genesis 3.16 reminds us that the conflict between wives that fight against their husbands and husbands that rule as tyrants over their wives, that conflict causes us to long for a perfect husband, for Jesus Christ, a husband who has loved us by the sacrifice of himself for us and who continues to love us with a perfect and sacrificial love. Genesis 3 ends by reminding us that the way into paradise, the way into God's presence is shut. We cannot go in. It is shut because of our sin. God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden and he barred the way to the tree of life eternal by the cherubim and by a flaming sword. But the chapter also ends by promising that God will open up a new way of access to himself. And what did God do? He took an animal. And the very first death in the new world, God killed that animal. And he took its skin and clothed Adam and Eve with the garments of skin. He shed the blood of an animal as a promise that he would, he would send one to die in the place of sinners, to shed his blood so that we may have access into the glorious presence of God. Romans 13, 14 states the fulfillment of this promise when it says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on like a garment, like clothing, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. God invites each of us to be clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. His perfect keeping of the law for us. To have that imputed to us. To be clothed with it. Through faith in Christ. Through Christ we may live and walk with God even now, even before Christ came. Through faith, the Old Testament saints may look forward to Christ and embrace Him, and even then live and walk with God now in this fallen and cursed world while we yet look forward to our day of entrance into the presence of God at the return of Christ. But now we must turn to Genesis chapter 4. 
Which brings me to my second point this morning, and which tells us of our present world. And it tells us of a seemingly fruitless, fleeting, and futile life. In Genesis 4, God tells us of the animosity and the contention that exists in this world between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman. That is to say, between the wicked in this world and the righteous who follow Christ in this world. Both Cain and Abel brought offerings to the Lord. Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now, I'm going to disagree with most commentators here because most commentators say that the type of offering had nothing to do with why God accepted Abel's offering but did not accept Cain's offering. They say Abel's offering was accepted because he offered it with faith and devotion, while Cain did not. But note that the text says nothing about whether faith and devotion were present or not, and and I assume that faith was present, in Abel's heart, and not present in Cain's heart, but God has not chosen to call attention to that. While the text very specifically calls attention and points out the type of offering that each brought. Let us note also some additional points. Number one, Abel's offering was in keeping with what God did when God shed the blood of an animal to cover Adam and Eve with their skins and thus symbolically cover their sins. Number two, it is clear that Abel did not merely bring sheep to God. Abel killed the sheep because he offered their fat to God. He sacrificed them to God and he very likely burned them on the altar, on an altar. Number three, Genesis 8.20 says that Noah offered sacrifices of every clean animal and burned them on an altar after the ark landed on a mount and they were able to debark. Why Why did Noah do this? There is no explanation in the text, but this strongly indicates that God instructed Adam and his descendants in the principle that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Even though it's not recorded, it's clearly implied that God spoke these things to Adam. And Adam and his descendants knew this principle. It appears that Abel not only gave his offering to God in faith, Abel offered it in obedience to God's instructions and with the realization that his sins could only be covered by the death of one in his place. But Cain did not do so. Cain evidently did not see any reason why he could not choose what offering to bring to God for his sins. So like Adam and Eve, Cain rebelled against God's will. Notice that when the Lord did not accept Cain's offering, Cain became very angry and his face 
fell. What does that mean? What does it mean when your face falls? Well, what, what does our face look like when it's lifted up? There's a great big smile on our face. There's joy. There's happiness. What does it look like when it falls? There's disappointment. There's sadness. There's despair. There's upset. There's anger. There's bitterness. Cain's face fell. And then we see that the Lord gently calls on Cain to reconsider his attitudes and his actions. He says, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? He invites Cain to explain what is going on in his heart. Now God knows what is going on in Cain's heart, but God wants Cain to think about and realize and deal with what's going on in his heart. The anger and the bitterness and the rebellion and the sin. And then God says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? This last phrase is literally, will not your face be lifted up? And if you do well is literally, if you do what is good, what is right, will not your face be lifted up? In other words, will not there be a great smile of joy? Will not there, your face indicate by its happiness and joy and peace that your heart is right with God and God accepts what you are doing? God is saying that repenting of anger and responding in obedience will result in acceptance by God and a smile of great joy upon Cain's face. God goes on to warn Cain, but if you do not do well, if you do not do what is good and right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, in our home, we have something that sometimes crouches by the door. Because we have five cats in our home. And it's really interesting to watch one of these cats crouch down and go into predator mode. Now, these are domestic cats, and except for one of them, uh, basically, they don't go outside. They live in the house all the time. We have one that really loves to go outside. And this morning, I had to climb over the neighbor's fence to get him back into our yard, but we won't go into that. But they crouch down when they're flat on the floor, and nobody can see that. Well, they think that, you know. And then they focus on what they're going to go after, and it might be your foot. And then the back end starts to wag back and forth. And then it wags more, faster, and it begins to raise, and it wags back and forth, and when it starts wagging real fast, you know that they're going to pounce. And they lunge, and they grab whatever it is, and if it's your foot, you're in big trouble. God is warning Cain here, that his sinful desires are like a lion that is crouching and is ready to pounce on him and ready to seize him and ready to destroy him. God says that sin's desire is literally towards Cain. Your sinful desires are toward you. And this means that Cain's sinful heart desires 
to take control of Cain and to rule him and to dominate his life and actions. God warns Cain that he must rule over his sinful heart or it will rule over him. It will have him in bondage. And that will be to his ruin and his destruction. Sadly, Cain chose to follow his sinful desires rather than to follow God. Cain decided that the solution to God accepting Abel's worship and not accepting his worship, the solution in Cain's mind to the problem was, I will make this right. I will kill my brother. I will get back at my brother and I will get back at God. And Cain murdered Abel. And that was the end of Abel's life under the sun. Sin in this world tragically ended Abel's life. Those who heard the account of Abel's life and Abel's death afterward evidently concluded that Abel's life was a fruitless, fleeting, and futile life. His life was just a breath, just a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. It is noteworthy that the Hebrew name Abel is the exact same word that is translated vanity in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 2. The exact same word. It appears that his life came to typify all that is fruitful, fruitless, fleeting, and futile in the world. And whenever people said Abel's name after his death, his name came to mean breath, vapor, and futility. Though commentators of the book of Ecclesiastes seldom explain why the book states that life in this world is frustrating, fruitless, fleeting, and futile, God actually explains in the book of Ecclesiastes why that is. God explains in the book that it is sin and its miseries and its curse that are the cause of this world's frustration and fleetingness of our lives and futility of so much that we do in this world. Ecclesiastes 1.18 says, For in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Why is the world so vexatious? Uh, the Hebrew word there means, why is there so much anxiety and angst and frustration in everything I try to accomplish it? Why is it whenever I try to fix something, I break it worse before I get it fixed? 
why is it that it seems that problems don't come singly, they come in threes? Things go wrong in threes. Why is the world so much like that? It's two steps forward and one step back, and sometimes it sure feels like it's one step forward and two steps back, constantly. And the Hebrew word translated sorrow here more widely refers not only to sorrow, but to the pains of life, the sufferings of life, as well as the sorrows of life that every dweller on earth experiences in this life. Now, it is true, it is true that unbelievers receive the full miseries and the full punishments of sin, and believers in Christ do not. But even those who trust in Christ, even those who have received the divine blessings of communion with God now and forevermore, we still must face the miseries of living in a world that is fallen and corrupt and sinful. That is vanity. That is frustration. And let us not forget that sin is not only committed against us by others, that's part of the fallenness and vanity of the world, but sin also dwells in the hearts of believers. Even though our Savior truly gives us the power to say no to sin, we will be battling with sin until the day we die, until the day Christ comes back, if we live that long on earth, we will be battling with sin. And we will continue to face some very powerful temptations to sin in this life. In my life, there have been some temptations to commit terrible sin that were so strong that I am not even comfortable sharing those with you. But I can say this about my battles with sin. It is when I faced my deepest fears or my deepest anger. It is when I have faced my deepest disappointments or my deepest bitterness that I have the greatest opportunity to grow in godly response to temptation. When God allows you to face a situation that causes That, that brings you to, to realize the depth of sin within you. It is in that situation that he has given you an opportunity to cast your cares upon Christ and to experience a seismic growth in holiness. God emphasizes in Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows out of it. Now he's not talking about your physical heart there. He's talking about the desires of your heart. What you value. Your attitudes. He's telling you to guard your heart before the Lord. Do not let Satan take control of the desires of your heart and turn them to wickedness. Fight 
for holy and righteous desires in your heart. Because everything that you say, everything that comes out of your mouth, and everything that you do, all the actions that come out of your life, they flow from your desires. They flow from what you love. They flow from your affections. Guard them that they would be holy desires before God. And Jesus explains in Luke 6.45, the good person, out of the good treasure in his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of his evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What causes us to sin? Is it really the agitation of another person? Well, that's a catalyst, but what really causes us to sin is what's in our heart. If thoughts of love for that other person are in our heart, that's when a, that is what is going to come out even when they seek to agitate us. If, if thoughts of bitterness and anger towards that other person are what we are cultivating in our heart when that other person agitates us, that is what is going to come out. The real problem is in our heart. The way the other person acts is secondary. Ecclesiastes 12.11 helps us to understand the questions in the book of Ecclesiastes. It says this, The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. The one shepherd who gives them, that is being referred to here, is God. God is the one that gives the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. God is the shepherd who shepherds people into his kingdom. And the preacher, the wise man who wrote Ecclesiastes, is repeatedly prodding his readers with many questions. He's not giving the answers, but he's prodding them with questions. He's using questions like goads, like pointed sticks to drive the cattle. How do you get a stubborn ox to, to move when you're trying to plow the field with him? You use an ox goad. You use a pointed stick. It will make him move. God is goading us. He is moving us. He is trying to get us to think and to answer questions throughout this book. He is trying to, God is seeking to awaken and the, the, the preacher is seeking to awaken his readers to realize that trying to find your meaning and your purpose and your fulfillment in life only in this fleeting and frustrating and futile life on earth, if you're trying to find your meaning in this life alone, that's foolishness. That is foolishness. You can't find it there. Because this is a cursed and fallen and sinful world. And it will disappoint you at every turn. The many miracles of creation point to God who created this world and who will bring those who return to him into a redeemed humanity and into a new heaven and a new earth. And the writer of Ecclesiastes, the, the preacher, also goads us to look at the world that God has created, the beautiful world, and to see beyond its fallenness and sin, 
to the perfection that God intends and will bring into the world. Miraculously, we see this. If we even think about it for a little while, miraculously we see that we have skin that, that protects us from infection. Uh, we are being taught, and it is assumed by everyone, well, that was just an accident. Just an accident that we have skin that seals our body and protects us from infection. Really, an accident, meaning there was no design, there was no plan. It's just as likely to not come about as to come about. And, and there are so many complicated things that, that all have to come together for, for that to happen. Even, even if most of our body was covered with skin, but just a little piece was not, we'd soon get infection and die. That's miraculous. We have blood which, when we get cut, it clots to stop the wound and protects us from bleeding to death. Is that an accident or a miracle? We have ears that miraculously have 24,000 hairs that separate every pitch and volume of sound and each of them pick up a different pitch and volume, and then they send all that data to the brain as neurological impulses. And we can't even begin to explain how our brain is able to assemble all this vast, all this vast data sent to it into sounds that we can amazingly hear and understand and act upon. The miracles of our body are incredible. And even more miraculous is that God's Spirit enables those whose hearts are ruled by sin to awaken from spiritual apathy and to hear and respond to God's call to trust in Him and love Him. Listen to the preacher's go to us in Ecclesiastes 1, 9-10. It says, What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has already been in the ages before us. People say, oh, yeah, that shows the Bible's wrong. Look at all the things that have been invented. Cars and planes and, and spaceships and computers and, 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 and cell phones. Surely no one believes that. But the preacher isn't talking about such things. He is talking about the way people act. He says in chapter 4 and verse 1, Again I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. That sounds like what I read in the newspaper last week. I find it very distressing to read repeatedly of teenagers shooting other teenagers in our schools and in our society right here, today, now, over and over again. I find it very distressing to read of prison guards committing terrible crimes against the inmates in those prisons and then having those over them in charge cover it up. 
I find it very distressing that the leader of Russia claims that the little itty-bitty nation of Ukraine is threatening them, and, and, and to see Russia using its military might to level cities and kill the people, the civilians of Ukraine. And today, today is the 21st anniversary of September 11th, 2001 when terrorists flew planes into skyscrapers and the Pentagon. Skyscrapers in New York, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and attempted also to hit another building. They were not successful in that and thousands of people died in our world. Thousands. We remember and we commemorate their deaths this morning. We can be thankful that our government has prevented anything like that ever happening again in the last 21 years. And we can point to that as progress, but it's also true that in the Middle East right now, there are three to five times more terrorist attacks than there were in 2001. And many people are still recruited into terrorist cells they're being recruited faster than we can defeat them. And that's the world in which we live. There is evil in this world. Such things have gone on since the entry of sin into the world. And every time people proclaim that we have turned a new page and we've created a new utopia, we discover that the problems that we have today are just as bad or even worse than they were before. Evil and apathy are very much present in every age. And it takes constant boldness and constant courage to, accept, to keep it from becoming accepted and normal in society. Ecclesiastes 1.15 says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Why is it that we can't fix our problems in our lives and in our society? Why is it that we can't fix them? And the answer is, because the problem lies in our sinful hearts. And every one of us faced the same situation that Cain faced with our sin about to pounce on us. And Satan, the roaring lion, about to take us captive to do his will. But there is an answer to that problem. There is an answer to the problem of our sinful hearts. And this brings me to point three. And we see in Hebrews chapter four, here we see lives and the world set free from futility. Now before you despair of the problems in the world, before you despair of the overwhelming problems in your own life, Let's look to the answer God's Word gives us. 
And let's return to the question that the preacher gives us in Ecclesiastes 1.9, which is meant to goad us to an answer. Here, God says to us, Is there a thing of which it is said? These are the words of the preacher, God's inspired words. Is there a thing of which it is said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. Now, I do not think the preacher is denying that there can be something new. He is just stating that nothing new has yet come. All things continue as they do because of the fall and the miseries and curse of sin are still with us. So I return to the question, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. What is new? What has come? Don't our hearts long for something that can change the heart of man and lessen the misery of sin? Don't the miracles of creation point to a God who is able to accomplish this work? Isn't the sacrifice of Christ the new thing that has the power to transform our hearts and to bring in a new heavens and a new earth, the whole of perfect righteousness? The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly. And if that was true for the Apostle Paul, it was even far more true for the Old Testament saints like the preacher. But see, they did. They saw that a Savior of mankind was coming. And Hebrews 11 begins its list of the faithful saints of God with none other than Abel, the one whose name came to mean emptiness, fruitlessness, fleetingness, and frustration and futility. The first listed of the saints who were faithful to God is Abel. Abel, whose name became a byword for an empty and purposeless life, God proclaims in Hebrews 11, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, as righteous in the sight of God. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. God tells us that Abel's short life and senseless death did not wipe out the meaning and purpose of his life. He is the first listed example of one who lived a life of faith and faithfulness to God. And by accepting Abel's sacrifice, God commended Abel as righteous in his sight. No doubt through his faith in the one who would come as his Savior. And even though Abel tried a, uh, died a tragic and premature death, his life was such a testimony of faithfulness to God that God, God's word says of him, Though he died, he still speaks. Can you believe that? God says that Abel's testimony, the testimony of his life, still rings down through the ages. Abel is telling us that it is worth living your life for the glory of God. Despite all the frustrations, 
all the disappointments, all the hardships in this life, it is still worth living your life for the glory of God because that is what brings eternal meaning and purpose to all of your life and all of your labors. It is not whether things go well for us or badly for us that determines the value of our acts and our days. It is our determination to use all things, both good and bad, to bring glory to God and blessing to others that determines the value of our acts and our days. In Romans 8, 18 through 23, God tells us that he partially reverses the curse when his Holy Spirit regenerates the heart of a person and that he will totally reverse the curse of sin when Christ returns and creates a new heavens and a new earth. Listen to this glorious passage in Romans 8, beginning at verse 18. For I consider, Paul is saying, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Really? Really? Some of the sufferings of, of this life are pretty horrible. What What about people who, who are struggling with cancer and whose lives are taken by it? What about people in Ukraine whose lives have been cut short by war? What about those who have been tortured for their faith? Really, the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed to us? Yes. God is saying on the scale of comparison, the most horrible suffering that we can possibly endure in this life is small compared to the eternal glory that God will shower upon his people forever. When he showers his love and mercy and presence and blessing on them forever. Paul goes on to say, for the creation right now, the whole creation waits with eager longing. What's it waiting for? For the revealing of the sons of God. Really? When are they going to be revealed? They're going to be revealed in all their glory when Christ returns. For the creation was subjected to futility, subjected to vanity, Subjected to the curse of sin. Subjected to the misery of sin. Subjected to the punishment of sin. All in creation is subjected to the misery of sin. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God brought the curse of sin for good. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The children of God already partially have that freedom. We have it in Christ. We've been forgiven. Our hearts have been changed. And we have the promise of eternal life. But the day is coming when all the creation shall be perfected. Creation here is personified as looking forward and all creation looking forward to that day when the curse of sin and corruption shall be removed from this world. 
Paul goes on to say, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We say, wait, but we're already adopted as sons. Yeah, you've got the first fruits of that. But the full adoption, that's when God redeems your body. That's when your body is raised up from the dust and the curse is wiped out. Death is wiped out as the very bodies of believers are raised up from the dust and made perfect and immortal. He goes on to say, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? In other words, we don't have it yet. We don't see this perfection yet, but we're hoping for it and he goes on he concludes in verse 25 but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it how he says we can wait for it with patience how can we be patient in the midst of such evil in this world we can be patient because we can know that God's in control and we will go to him when we die through faith in Christ And we know that he will return and bring in a new heavens and a new earth for us to dwell in. What a glorious passage. And 1 Corinthians 15, 48 through 58. I'm not going to read this whole passage. I don't have the time to do that. But that passage explains that Jesus Christ will return to redeem our bodies to raise them up from the dust of the ground, to give to every child of God a sinless and imperishable soul and body and to grant us to dwell in the presence of God for all eternity. Death will be defeated, and all those in Christ will triumph over death. And he concludes by saying this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God is telling us that the miseries of sin And the frustrating, fleeting, and empty nature of this present world cannot annul the value of what you do in this world for the glory of God. Everything that Christians do in this world for the glory of God has value that lasts forever and for which God will commend them. But God has one more word to share about Abel. In Hebrews 12, 22-24, he says to all those in Christ, But you have come to Mount Zion. You're, 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 not, you're not coming to where God spoke the law to the people on Mount Sinai. You're coming to Mount Zion. You're coming to the heavenly Jerusalem. You're coming to God's presence in heaven. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That is all God's people assembled in heaven. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect perfect in holiness and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel Why does the blood of Jesus speak a better word than the blood of Abel? 
Abel was faithful. And we know that his testimony was follow God because all that you do for God will have eternal value and meaning. It will never be vain or empty. But what did his blood? What what was the word of his blood? We read in Genesis that Abel's blood cried out from the God from the ground. And God said to Cain, your brother's blood cries out from the ground. What was it crying for? It was crying for justice. It was crying for justice in this world. And God will bring justice, complete justice. He will punish all sin. And He will bless all righteousness. He will reward all righteousness. God will do that. But what does the blood of Jesus cry out for? The blood of Jesus does not cry out for justice. The blood of Jesus cries out for forgiveness. Because we all deserve punishment for our sins. But the blood of Jesus cries out for our forgiveness, for our salvation, for our eternal life. And if we will put our faith and trust in Christ alone, our sins are washed away. And we shall dwell in a perfectly just and holy and righteous world. A world that we don't deserve to dwell in, but that we shall dwell in through Christ's forgiveness of our sins through faith in Him. Jesus' blood cries out from God's sanctuary in the highest heavens for forgiveness and eternal blessing for all who trust in Him. God concludes Hebrews 12 by telling us that Christ will return to remove this present fallen world and to replace it with a perfect world that will never pass away. And he tells us that this ought to motivate us, even now, as we are struggling with the futility of this present world, it ought to motivate us to live as Abel did by offering to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And I conclude with God's words in Hebrews 13, verses 15 through 20, where he tells us what sacrifices we today can bring to God that are pleasing to him. God says to us, through Him then, through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the lips of the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. And do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Let us pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we rejoice not only that justice and, and punishment for wickedness are coming and all things shall be set right, but we also rejoice of the salvation and forgiveness that we sinful people have through Christ and how we look forward 
to that day of dwelling in your presence. Lord, help us to lift up our faces in joy. Help us to lift up our hearts and embrace holiness and righteousness. Help us to lift up our lives to serve and praise and honor you and do good to those around us for the glory of your name. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.